Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Marty Oakley, the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the DS Radio Network. That was the voice of Marty Oakley, the founder of this and other programs with TS Radio. Marty sadly passed on April the 1st of this year. She was an amazing warrior and advocate, warning people about the dangers of the medical profession, and she will never be forgotten. Rest in peace, Marty. Good evening. I'm Marcia Joyner, and this is Betrayed by Hospice. I want to start out by remembering and honoring the people that we lost 22 years ago during the attack on our country on 9-11 this past Monday. They and their families and what was done to our country will never be forgotten. I also want to remember my friend Dave, who passed this Monday, September the 11th. Dave and I met at work and were friends for 40 years. I went to visit him last Wednesday, and the hospice nurse was there. And I have to admit I'm proud of myself for not launching an attack on her, but I just didn't feel it was my place. Dave had been diagnosed with fourth-stage cancer, lung, and esophageal mid-August. His words to me were, I'm dying, I can't do shit, and just let me go. He was in bad shape, sitting in his recliner with two oxygen tank, nostril tubes in his nose, each tank set at eight as he struggled to breathe. The hospice nurse stood up and gave his brother Nick a handwritten paper with instructions that she read aloud. It was all too familiar to me. He had already received 0.25 milliliters of morphine in an Ativan. She instructed, if in 10 minutes he isn't settled, give him another 0.25 of morphine. If 10 minutes later, another 0.25, and another 10 minutes later after that, if he's not settled, equaling one milliliter. If after 20 minutes needed for anxiousness, give him another Ativan, and then if he's still anxious and he needs something, give him a Halperidol 30 minutes later and do this every three hours. I sat silently shaking my head, tearing up and wanting to scream as Nick watched me and her. He knew my story. And I asked her, why would you give him Haldol? Her comment was, he's very anxious. And indeed he was, as he continued to stare at the oxygen finger monitor, decreased to 77, then 63, when he moved in his chair. He told her his arms felt numb, and she said, oh, that will subside. I said, it's the toxic drugs, Dave. She left, and Nick and I discussed the meds, and he agreed he wouldn't give them to him unless Dave specifically requested it, and it was time, and he had been waiting longer than the three hours. I showed Dave pictures of us at birthday luncheons and get-together, which calmed him a little bit. We laughed, remembering old times. And another friend of ours came in, Claudia, and she was talking to him when, out of the blue, he says, is it time for more morphine? And I asked him, why, are you in pain? And he said, no, abruptly. And I said, okay, then why do you want more morphine? Because I do, and he snapped at me, but I didn't take it personally, because I know morphine can make somebody agitated, which is why then a nurse can talk the family into giving Ativan. It's a vicious cycle. Claudia and I both attempted to talk him out of it, and, you know, he told us to shut the blank up, but no offense taken. 
Nick didn't give him any more at that time, and Claudia and I left. The next morning when I talked to Nick, he said Dave could knew that he was there. He heard him, but he couldn't see him. And that reminded me my mom couldn't see me, and Liz's husband, Alan, couldn't see her. It's all part of the drugs. And what relief and comfort are they providing when a person can't see their loved ones and they're confused? His arms were totally numb that morning, and Dave and Nick discussed the drugs and opted not to take them again. So I kind of felt really good about that because we had talked about them, and maybe that had made a difference, I hope. He was moved into the nursing home on Saturday, had friends visit on Sunday, and he watched the Eagles play football. It was a good day. He passed on Monday morning, and according to Nick, without any more drugs. It was a sad day, but I felt relieved in a way that he wasn't miserable anymore. He wasn't afraid and just waiting until it was over. His battle with cancer, fear, and anxiousness was over. And he resides in heaven with his mom, his two brothers gone before him. But somehow meeting Nick was comforting to me because then I feel like I still have a connection to him. So tonight... I share this story with you. I remember him. And I just want you to understand the dangers of trusting what you're told. I'm glad I went to see him and that I didn't wait any longer because we'd never know. So rest in peace, Dave. Our guest this evening, Rachel Eisenhower, will tell the story of her dad who ultimately came down with COVID. So I want to talk a bit about the crazy COVID protocol before she tells you what happens. Remdesivir is the only FDA-approved drug and listed as emergency use for COVID. Its benefit-risk ratio is still being determined. And as we know, every medication has risk. But in the case of remdesivir, many doctors noted acute renal and liver failure in patients, but those in power refused to listen. Remdesivir was developed in 2009 by Gilead Sciences to treat hepatitis C and respiratory succinctal virus, but it didn't work. So they repurposed it for Ebola and Marburg virus in 2014. It didn't work for that either. So in 2020, they repurposed it for COVID-19, and it's pretty clear it isn't working for that either. But as we always say, let's follow the money. The cost in 2020 was $520 per vial for a five-day treatment, equaling $3,120. Now let's compare that to ivermectin, which cost $94 per treatment. But that was refused to patients, even if the patient, the family, or the doctor wanted it. But just like penicillin and aspirin, ivermectin is derived from nature. It was approved in 1987 and was successful to treat the world's most harmful tropical diseases, and it is one of the safest drugs on the World Health Organization list of essential medicines and has eradicated endemic parasitic infections around the world. And many studies demonstrated its potent ability to inhibit SARS-CoV-2 and recovery from COVID-19, but it hasn't been approved In fact, many doctors have been cited, warned, and prohibited of using ivermectin on COVID. 
and because it is also used to fight parasitic infections in animals, many people were going to their veterinarians to get it to use for human use, but FDA was warning the public not to do that. They said it hadn't been adequately tested, while they continue to insist on using remdesivir, which was killing people, and has not been proven safe or a cure for COVID. It's not about curing COVID or safety. It's about money for Big Pharma, and as we know, the doctors were incentivized to call it COVID and use the approved protocol. Rachel will witness to this tonight, as others, have, as others in the past have. The FDA revoked approval of known life-extending drugs containing monoclonal antibodies, which mimicked the body's creation of antibodies against disease and were more effective than remdesivir, which had a 53% death rate certainly higher than COVID. So as the media ramps up discussion about new variants of COVID EG.5, nicknamed Perola, and BA.286, named Eris, this fall, please keep in mind what I just talked about. If you have any questions or a comment, if you select one on your phone, you will be put into a queue to ask a question. If you are listening live um, via the, in, the Internet, and you have a question, you'll have to call in and ask your question. Do the same thing. Press 1. That number is 917-388-4520. So I'd like to turn the program over to my guest, Rachel Eisenhower, who will tell us what happened to her dad, James Eisenhower, who turned 90 on the 1st of February, 2023, and lost the battle on the 24th of March. 2023 this year. Rachel, again, I'm so deeply sorry for the loss of your dad, and I know how hard this is for you to talk about it so soon, but as you and I have talked about, you want to make a difference, and you want people to know the story and perhaps save their loved one with the information that you share with us tonight. So can you please tell us in your words what happened to your precious dad? Yeah, absolutely, Marcia. Thank you for having me. Um, I appreciate everything you guys are doing. And, yes, this will be hard. I'm going to try not to cry, but we'll get through it. But, yeah, I want to start with that um, when I was 15, by the time I was 15 years old, I wanted, I knew I had volunteered for an ambulance and I knew medicine. So I wanted to work in the medical field. Um, by the time I turned 18, I was an EMT moved to a new city, uh, not a lot of jobs, and I ended up working in a level one trauma center. Um, and at, at the time, there was one point where I was working day shift, and I was assigned to uh, a clinic uh, with a doctor, and we weren't busy. And this was a new doctor to our emergency room, and we were sitting chatting, and I just kind of asked him, I said, so... Um, where did you work before? And he had mentioned Kaiser, which my father was a Kaiser member, unfortunately. Um, and I said, well, gee, I said, what, why would you come to work at a, you know, a county teaching hospital when um, Kaiser is you know, known to pay very well for their employees? And it just seemed really odd to me. So I asked him, well, what, what brings you here? I mean, it's so, so nice over there and the pay is different. Um, and he he looked me in the eye and he said, I can't, 
I can't treat people the way Kaiser wants me to treat people. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, let me, let me explain. He says, I was assigned um, to my practice. I was assigned so many patients, we'll just say 200 or whatever. And he says, I was given a budget. And he says, every x-ray I order, every medication I order, anything I do for a patient comes out of my budget. He says, at the end of the year, um, if I go under budget, I get whatever's left over back, plus a big bonus. And I guess the bonus was on a scale, like if you so much under budget, you get this much. So they were incentivized to not treat people, um, you know, and at the end of the year, big bonus. And he says, I just can't treat a human being like, like money. He says, I can't do it. He says, but working here, he says, I don't even have to worry if they have insurance or not, and I can order any test I want, and that's the type of care that human beings deserve. And he says, and I just couldn't wake up in the morning and look at myself. I felt like a horrible human being, you know. And so that's why he left, and that, that stuck with me for a long time. And I was in my early 20s working there, going to nursing school, and, uh, you know, I spent a good five years there. And my mom passed away at Kaiser uh, at 60, and she wasn't treated well. I actually even went against the board at Kaiser. So knowing that, I knew that, you know, with my dad, I had to be very careful. I knew that I would have to advocate for him, which I did. And then you had given me, um, I had told, told you this story, and you had referred me to something called the Kaiser Papers. And before I start, I want to read this to you. Uh, that was written in the Kaiser papers, and I was so shocked when I read this and so thankful to, to the person who's created these papers. It says in the Kaiser papers, the medical insurance industry agenda to intentionally allow high-cost patients, end-of-life patients, or very long-term and expensive to treat patients to be either killed outright or by creating a series of intentional medical errors to drastically shorten life. Wow. Mm -hmm. I was blown away by that because this is exactly what happened to my dad the whole way through once he hit a certain age. And I'm going to explain. So now my my dad uh, had a back injury from years ago, and he never got it repaired. But he came to the point where he started falling a lot because his back would give out. And he was about 80... He was in his very late 80s, and um, and I'll, I'll tell you, you have to be very careful with the medical field. After he had fallen three times and I had taken him to the ER, uh, a social worker was sent to my house. Oh, boy, I, I finally kicked this lady out of my house. She had been there three hours talking to me nonstop. Who owns the house? What kind of money does your dad have? I mean, all of this personal questions, and they come in, they look over your house, I showed you know, his room and how he gets around and, oh, you have a rug and, oh, my goodness, I I was just shocked. I mean, there's no reason for them to know, need to know all that information. It was just so nuts. After three hours, I kicked her out. I've never done that really to anybody in my life. May I interject? Mm -hmm. May I interject something? Sure. In hospice, and why they send a social worker out is after three times, if you show up to the hospital for falls or respiratory issues or anything, you become known as a frequent flyer. Mm-hmm. 
And oh, yeah. that is when they show up at your house because they don't want to have to pay that money, so they want to talk you into, well, you know, your loved one needs to go into hospice. This was written in Michelle Dewar's book, which is Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. So that is a real thing, and it is also in the CMS documentation, vitus.com, that says three times, it's kind of like three times is a charm. Well, it's not a charm. Three times, right. and you are flagged. Your dad was flagged. Oh, absolutely. So I just wanted to make that clear to anybody who's not aware of that that's listening. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's okay. No, absolutely I was targeted. And, boy, let me tell you, unbelievable. So um, in reading the Kaiser papers, now keeping in mind that they intentionally uh, withhold care, I'm going to start with an incident that happened uh, December 24th, Christmas Eve, 2001. I thought it was 22. It was 2001. Um, So um, my dad had been having breathing problems. He had a history of COPD. However, when he moved in with me, it completely cleared up. He very rarely needed a breathing treatment. So it wasn't he was not on oxygen. He wasn't, you know, he did normal things. And every once in a while, excuse me, maybe if there was a fire or something, smoke in the air, he would need a breathing treatment. Not often. So he started to have breathing problems. And I called twice and had a video call with his doctor, and they would give him steroids. The second video call, it was more steroids. And the third time, I took him in to see the doctor. Well, I wheeled him in in a wheelchair. They checked his pulse ox and said, no, this is just his COPD. I kept saying, no, this is not normal for him. Yes, someone with COPD normally has trouble breathing, but he does not. It was very, very mild, like very mild, Um, maybe more like a a mild asthma he would have. And, you know, they took his pulse ox. Well, they didn't get him up and walk him around either. Um, but yeah, oh no, he's fine. And then more antibiotics and steroids go home. I'm like this is ridiculous. And it was so frustrating to me. I couldn't get help, and I knew something was wrong. Well, <clears throat> fast forward to Christmas Eve, 24th. Uh, it was in the middle of the night. My dad got up to go to the bathroom, got dizzy, and fell. So I couldn't lift him. So I called the ambulance. The ambulance came, and they really harassed me. They did not want to transport him. They wanted to just help me put him back in bed and not transport him. I said, absolutely not. Well, my punishment for that was they refused to take him to Kaiser. They said they had to take him to the county trauma center because he's now a trauma. And I might add that at the time he was on um, blood centers. And I was told by multiple people, if he ever falls, no matter how little you take him, he could bleed to death. So they weren't concerned, though. They just wanted to put him back in bed. Absolutely not. They harassed me. And even, I mean, they were here forever. Like, let's just get him going. So the, the, and I told them, I said, this is kidnapping. If you take him where I don't want you to take him. And that kind of got their attention. And then, you know, then they talked me in, you know, they made me agree to let him go to the trauma center which I didn't want because all of his records are at Kaiser. But they ultimately said, well, it's a, I, and, and I just got tired of arguing with him. I just said fine because I wanted him to be taken care of. 
So we go. Um, he was in their trauma room, what they call the recess room. He was in there. Um, and they did all kinds of stuff. And by the time I got there, it turns out he had a fracture in his back. His T4 was fractured. Now, it didn't bother him. So it was kind of amazing that he had a fractured T4 and it didn't bother him. So that was good. And we stayed and they did some tests for a few hours. And uh, mind you, they did a drug and alcohol test, which I thought was hysterical. Of course, it was negative. I don't know why. I know that. I know from working there that is part of the trauma but, uh, protocol. But still, it was kind of funny. But um, so I, I still didn't feel comfortable taking him home. And they, they came to discharge him. And I said, you know, you know, I think he should day and they're like no really and I, I'm thinking in the back of my mind you know I had a big Christmas dinner ready I had bought and uh, cooked and Christmas Eve of course I want my dad home and I, I I walked him around on my own and I said well I guess he's okay and as we were wheeling him out in a wheelchair you know he was squirming around like he had to go to the bathroom and of course the nurse is going faster because the nurse doesn't even want to stop to let him go to the bathroom. But that wasn't the case. He vomited. Not only did he vomit, he vomited dark black blood. They did turn him around and ended up keeping him. And um, it turns out that his hemoglobin was low, which is why he was short of breath. Of course, the labs, they kept saying, well, yeah, his iron's low, but it's always kind of low like that. They knew that before they let him go. Um, but at this place, I didn't have access to his record to, to be able to look at the lab. So I wasn't able to see. Um, I just had to kind of take their word. So they did end up admitting him. And they kept saying that he probably has this Barrett's esophagus from, you know, he had had problems like this. And I had, I had heard that before. And I said, well, gosh, I'm going to need to know if he has that, and it was a whole big fight to get them to do a scope, to scope his throat. Um, and, I, and I kept telling them, I said, you know, I said, if he has this, my uncle had just passed away from the same disease, and they go very quickly. It's a very fast and progressive disease. And as a single caregiver with absolutely no family and no help, I said, listen, I need to know. So you're going to scope him. And they were mad because they didn't want to do it. So, um, and, and let me back up here. They, the only reason he got the blood transfusion was because I forced them to do the scope. They were too uncomfortable with his hemoglobin that low to do the procedure. However, they were okay with sending him home with me that way in that shape. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Of course, if it's over their ass, then, oh, Absolutely. And I'm probably sure he probably needed two two quarts, you know, two pints of blood, but they only gave him one, which actually did clear up his breathing. So they they scoped him. He didn't have the Barrett's esophagus, which was good. Um, and after the scope, they had, you know, of course, gave him medication, IV meds, strong IV meds to do the scope. And, you know, he was, like, dizzy and tired, and it was late in the evening, and they wanted to send him home that evening. And I said, absolutely not. You're going to keep him here another night, and I will come get him first thing in the morning happily. But I'm not going to take him home. And, you know, that would have upset his routine as well. And with dementia, you know, if his routine was off, it caused trouble for me, Um, you know, confusion for him. So 
so I mean, to, I mean, they were just like, "Here's your hat. What's your hurry?" And at the time, they had found that he had. They said kidney failure at the time, left kidney failure. Um, that and they found something else on CT, some type of cyst somewhere. And I didn't even look into that because obviously I wouldn't, you know, be doing chemo or anything. You know, he's, um, you know, 80, 88, um, almost 89 at the time, so it didn't really matter. But um, the kidney failure. So as time went on, when he had gone back to Kaiser, they had said that no, that it's not kidney failure. They're sure this was congenital, that he was born this way, and it's always been this way. So that was good. But nevertheless, still, um, you know, a kidney that's not fully functioning. So anyways, we we went through a lot. He was better after that, and his breathing cleared up. And then the next problem to address was the low iron level. He still had low iron. And I went round and round with them, give him um, a pill, you know, an iron pill, but that causes constipation. That doesn't work. And I finally said to the doctor, don't you have anything else? This, I can't, I'm not going to constipate him and do this to him. Well, we could do some uh, IV iron for you. I said, okay. So we got that, and he was so much better for a whole year. He was good. Um, and I, I had found some stuff on my own that was liquid iron, that would have done the exact same job for him as the IV iron, and I could have done it at home and just give it to him every day. Um, wow, and I think I sent that to you. So, yes, I tell, mean, but, tell, our, tell our listeners what that is. It is called, oh, hold on a second. Let me look. I forget the name of it offhand. Give me just a second, and I will pull it up. It's some of the best stuff. It's a little pricey. But uh, it's good. Oh, iron. Okay. I'll send it to you. Uh, bear with me here one minute. Yeah, I wrote it down somewhere, and now I can't find where I wrote it down. It's called Floor Addicts, F-L-O-R-A-D-I-X, Iron and Herb Supplements. And it comes in some big bottles, and they're very heavy. Um, but but they're wonderful. I mean, it, it this was recommended to me by a doctor that um, that agrees that Invermectin and she's you know uh, thinks you know same same thing. So, anyways, but that was never offered as a solution. You know, it was just they were just going to let him go, and it was so obvious to me. And at some point, I had moved him to palliative care, which at the time I was told, oh yeah, if if you want to put him in our palliative care program, you'll have access to a doctor 24-7, and we'll find other options to take care of him at home. And I thought, well, that's good. You know, I'll have, you know, 24-7. I won't have to call the advice nurse when something goes wrong. They have their own doctors there. That will be great. Oh, that's not great. Absolutely not. Not a good thing. I, I didn't realize, even with my medical background now, I didn't realize because I had never worked in this part of medicine, what they do to just uh, ignore things. And that's absolutely what they want to do. Well, it's it's manipulation, what they tell you that they'll do for you. And the minute you get in there, within a short period of time, now all of a sudden that person is no longer in palliative. They are under hospice care and they stop their medication and they start their drugging. 
It is just a way to get you in the door quickly, and then they change all the rules. It is, and uh, they were trying to put him kind of into hospice, but he did not qualify with Medicare, so they could not. Um, I mean, he was walking, and, you know, he still read the paper every day, could use the bathroom on his own, all of those things. And, you know, he wasn't, you know, he was pretty oriented for someone with dementia. He didn't have the hallucinations or anything like that. Uh, Up until the minute he died, he was, like, awake and knew what was going on. So, yeah, it's just amazing. So uh, palliative care, I would advise anybody, never go the palliative care route ever. And um, palliative care from the minute that uh, he was assigned to palliative care, you know, the doctor, the doc, his doctor said to me, oh, you're such a good daughter to do this for him. You know, praises, praises, praises. Uh, boy, little did I know that was a bad route. But they would call me every so often. And they didn't like, he had a bolt that he made 10, 10 years prior. Um, and he did it when I was not with him. He just did it one day when he went on his own to the doctor. And he never wanted CPR, uh, but he wanted um, an airway. He wanted to make sure his airway was supported. And he wanted nutrition and I forget what else he put in there. But pretty much, and without... Uh, since he didn't want CPR, he normally would have been a do not resuscitate, but since he wanted the airway, they couldn't do it. And I can't tell you how many times they called, oh, just to call and check, see how you guys are doing. And the, it always came to the, well, this makes no sense. If he doesn't want CPR, there's no point in doing his airway. And this is going to be very important when I tell you what happened, because this is what uh, saved him. And that was his fear. His fear was not being able to breathe because he had had the breathing trouble so bad that he was terrified. You know, it's a bad feeling when you can't breathe. It's very scary. And so uh, that's what saved him. And thank goodness, you know, if someone doesn't want CPR, I can totally understand. I, for me, that's probably not a choice I would want, but it's up to that person. So we had a good year uh, after he fell. And then... Uh, Valentine's Day of this year, I was taking a shower, getting ready to go and get myself to the dentist, and FedEx arrived with the Floridex with his iron, uh, with a couple of big bottles of iron in a big box. Uh, while I was in the shower, I'm looking at the, the camera footage back, I see exactly what happened. He was reading, doorbell rang, which was so unusual because must have been a new driver. They never ring the bell, but they did. And I saw him sitting there wondering to himself, hmm, I wonder who's there. Should I get it? Now, he knew not to answer the door. I always told him, don't, you do not answer the door if I'm in the shower. He knew better. But he did, and he found the box, and he tried to pick up the box, and he fell. Uh, so, once again, I'm in my bathrobe, out of the shower, called the ambulance, and um, once again, they didn't want to transport him. They just... Uh, oh, come on, we'll just help you. Why don't you bring your, your desk chair out here and we'll, we'll sit him in a chair. He looks pretty good. He's 90 years old. He just turned 90 years old and he's fallen. That's a, I don't care who you are. Once you hit a certain age, you need to go get checked out. for bro- I mean, he could have broken a hip. You name it, anything. Right, right, right. Yeah, and he fell kind of on his shoulder. He fell sideways. So that was a big 
to do. So once again, he's transported to Kaiser. They have him out in the hallway, and I had to fight to sit with him. Well, he's in the hallway. You can't be with I said, listen, you don't leave a child without a parent. And I said, at this point, he's like a child. You don't leave him alone. The last time they left him in the hallway, he came home with his clothes soaking wet because they wouldn't get him a urinal. They totally ignored him. And uh, anyway, at the time, they thought that he had dislocated his shoulder. And I don't know why. Anyway, so they said his shoulder was dislocated and they were going to put it back in place. And I said, well, when when you're going to do that, I'm going to step out because I, I know that's painful and I've seen it done before and I just it hurt me too bad to watch him in pain. So I stepped out and when I came back, they said, well, it, no, his shoulder wasn't out, out of place. We'll just put a sling on him. And, and to do that, they gave him a huge dose of fentanyl. Huge. He was so out of it. And, you know, with medication like that, my dad would become kind of belligerent and, you know, and, of course, not know what's going on. And Right. He was just a mess. I couldn't believe they gave him fentanyl. Wow. And so as right before the doctor walked away, I said, you know, and I had the app so I could look, and I saw there was no labs. And I thought, well, that's odd. And I said to the doctor, I said, are you going to do some labs on him? And I hear her walk away, and she says to the nurse, ah, the daughter wants labs now. Well, yes, I had had a doctor's appointment. I think that was a Wednesday. I had a doctor's appointment for him on Friday because I knew something was going on. So anyways, once they did labs, they couldn't very well ignore them. And uh, then then they came and did a full workup, and they found that he had a uh, like an, uh, what do you call it? Like a, it's a blood clot in his leg um, that they think what had happened is part of that clot uh, came off and caused him to pass out when he picked up the box. And by the way he falled, it, it really appeared that way. So now I have all these decisions to make. I couldn't put him back on um Oh, what do you call it? the blood centers? I couldn't put him back on the blood centers because uh, those are what caused his bleeding before when uh, he had fallen in and been to the trauma center. They had taken him off of those, and I didn't like them anyway. They're such a strong medication, a very dangerous medication. Um, so they said, well, the only other option is to put a cage in, and they go into your heart, and it's kind of a scary procedure, but that's what I had to do. So And they were very upset, very upset with me doing that, and I did. Um, and so he was admitted, and he was ad- – and and one of the first things that your doctor said to me is, oh, we'll get him a little rehab. We'll send him to, to rehab, and I'll never forget. One of the other – I don't know if he was a doctor or a nurse – said to me, you know, oftentimes they don't come – they come out of rehab worse than when they go in. And my heart sank because I knew that. Uh, but the problem was with his shoulder being bad, I couldn't take him home. If he couldn't get up himself and use his walker on his own, I'm just a one person. I couldn't have done that for him, you know. So I'm, I'm like, I don't Let really me, have a choice. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I just want to backtrack for a second. Was your dad at this time opioid naive? He had never been given narcotics before. Is that right? Oh, oh no, he was not opioid naive. Um, but when his back, before his back surgery, he was on a, um, oh, it's a synthetic morphine. It's stronger. Um, di- he was on Dilaudid. Okay. And okay. He, so uh, he had taken he had taken narcotics before. When they gave him this fentanyl, I just want to point out that fentanyl is 100 times stronger than morphine. And I don't know why they would have given him fentanyl and not given him a small dose of morphine. But to give him fentanyl 100 times stronger than morphine is quite a bit. So I just wanted to point that out to um, our listeners. No, you're right, and I was floored when they gave that to him, and that continued through his hospital stay until I put my foot down. So let's see. So he had his cage put in, and then he was moved to a different floor, and um, they were coming in doing physical therapy every day. He was there about five days, physical therapy, and he had this arm sling. Oh, so let me back up. So with this arm sling, with this rotator cuff, so they – and then they started to tell me it was his, so he had the cage and then it was focused on the shoulder, right? Because I kept thinking, my, if I could just get his shoulder fixed, I can take him home. Um, I didn't want him to go to rehab because I know better. Um, those places are horrible. They don't treat people well. They abused him. Anyway, so the rotator cuff, so I was told his shoulder wasn't out of place, that he would just need an arm sling. I said, well, why the arm sling? Well, he's got a little tear in his rotator cuff. I said, so why don't you fix it? It's a short and easy surgery, and I can take him home. And the doctor, and and I went around, and the doctor looked at me, and she said, if he was younger, no problem, but not at his age. He's too old. She looked in my face and told me that. And I kept going round and round, then what's the sling going to do? I talked to many different doctors, got many different answers, and finally they had the orthopedic specialist call me, and he told me, he says, no, he doesn't have a torn rotator cuff. So the stories are always changing. He doesn't have a torn rotator cuff. He has, um, he, he says, most of the world will probably have that, like when uh, someone sleeps on their side, you know, you sleep on your shoulder all that time and press. He says, probably half of the people that you x-ray would have that. It's just from old age. And that made total sense to me. But yet mm-hmm. they still have in the swing, and I should have been, smart enough to take the sling off and see if he could use his arm, but I really thought he couldn't use his arm. I really did. I didn't realize. And I ordered him a a, a nice neoprene um, sling that covers the shoulder and just kind of down the arm that wasn't, you know, those slings that they use that go across the chest, you know, like to hold a cast up? That's what they actually had him. And then I complained, and they put him in this big bolster thing something to hold the arm to the side and a big thing to go around his front. It was so big and bulky. And you see, I couldn't take him home in that. There's no way because I would have to, you know, get him up. Get yeah, That would have been too much for me alone. So I was so frustrated. And the whole time that he was there, they were giving him strong pills. They gave him the fentanyl. And then they gave him, it's stronger than Norco. They were giving him something else. Some IV. I said, no, that's too much. 
so they took it down, and mind you, the whole time the nurses are looking at me like I'm the Wicked Witch of the West. Like, he's 90, just let him have it. Just just give it to him. And those medications changed his personality terribly. They made him a surly person. And, exactly. and um, not only did they make him surly, they made him more confused. And, you know, as long as he's in a place for a day, he would, you know, acclimate and then understand the routine. But when he was first there, he was so out of it. And so I said, look, I'm not against him having pain medication if he needs pain medication, if he's in pain, but he's not in pain. So then I said, listen, you can give him maybe some Tylenol and codeine, but you're going to try the Tylenol or the Motrin first. And so then, I mean, I was looked at as just the most horrible person on this earth, on this earth. Um, because you don't want your dad to be over-medicated. Right, and that was their goal. I couldn't believe the amount of Mm -hmm. narcotics they were shocking to. So they uh, fixed up all his labs and just other stuff, and uh, I went uh, February 15th, worst day of my life. I cried on the way there and driving with him. You know, they transported him by ambulance, um, and I had a choice of two nursing home slash rehab. One was super nice, fancy schmancy, but they had horrible reviews saying they let people fall. And the other one was older place, but they had good reviews. And a lot of the reviews said, oh, don't let the older look of the place fool you. The people here are really great and good. Okay, well, I'll take, you know, care over looks any day. So we get there. I followed him. And we pulled up, and I was shocked, Marsha. The roof, the roof, not only was the place old and looked like it was falling apart, it had probably aged 20 years from the pictures I saw, and the roof, the shingle roof had a big tarp over it from where there was a leak in the roof. And my first two thoughts were, oh, my God, the roof, if it doesn't cave in, there's probably mold in here. Because um, now it's, you know, it's February. It still had been raining, and who knows how long that tarp had been there. And we walked in, and the smell of bleach, and yes, this place was old and horrible. I was I was scared to leave my dad there. It just felt so not homey, didn't even feel safe to me. I, I couldn't sleep when he was there. It was absolutely horrible. And the, the paramedics or the EMTs put him in his room, and we sat there. Nobody. Nobody came to welcome him. I waited an hour. I'm like, is anybody going to come say hello, uh, admit him, do, oh, we're doing this okay. and that. And they, yeah, they brought in a fall right. mat, which, and they put it next to his bed. And he had a walker. And that fall mat, and it happened, was an accident waiting to happen. No, 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 we have to have the fall mat because uh, if they fall, you know, you want them to land here. I said, but this is creating a trip hazard when it's right next to his bed and he needs his walker. I said, that's a trip or fall hazard all on its own. No, 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 no. So when I was there, I, I didn't let it sit there, but they always put it back. Terrible. And so the... Finally, they got things going, and the wound nurse came in, and mind you, he had a small skin tear on his arm from when he fell. And she came in, and um, she put a little some 
two, three stereo strips, very small, on on the, on the skin tear. And when you put stereo strips on, uh, the normal procedure is just to leave them and they'll fall off. So that's fine. And she put some nice stuff on it, nice gal. And then people came in and they seemed nice enough. And dietary came in. It's all it's all smoke and mirrors though. So. <clears throat> He stayed there, and he was getting physical therapy three times a day, which was great. I thought, good, I can get him stronger. But now looking back, the fact is he didn't really need physical therapy. He didn't, but I thought that he couldn't use his arm. So that was why. And the next day after he was admitted, he got mad when I was there. He said, get this thing off of me. I'm so tired of this things in my way. And he threw it off, and he got up in his walker on his own, no problem. I should, Marsha, I feel so bad. I should have just taken him home right then and got him the heck out of there. Because mm-hmm. he didn't need to be, he could walk fine on his own. Um, they milked that for all they could. He could walk fine on his own. But I thought to myself, and um, my friends back east were telling me, you know, Trish, just let him stay there. It's fine. He's already there. Um, and it was, a, it was a break for me because, as you know, I work full-time, um, taking care of him full-time. I'm up all night with the cat. I was exhausted, you know. I really was, and I had done this it seven does. full-time by myself. Yeah, I mean, it wears it, on you. Right. No, it it really does. And so um, so he was there, and he had first roommate. It was kind of weird and ended up leaving. And then um, he was there almost two weeks. And the first uh, weekend, uh, it said on his door, it had his name on his door, and it said shower Saturday. So I was there on Saturday, and I walked in Saturday morning. He was laying in bed on an air mattress, no sheet, just in a dirty old gown, no sheet, no shower. And I went and asked, I said, um, why hasn't he taken a shower? Well, we asked him, and he said, no, of course. He's always going to say no because he doesn't want to put anybody else to work. But, but you know, when someone has dementia, you don't give them a choice because they will always say no. Uh, That's they right. They don't get it. Yeah, and they they know that. They work there. They, they should know better, and I know they do. It's just, oh, what an easy excuse. If the patient says no, no, great, you know. So they didn't give him a shower, and so I complained, and the CNA that was there he was really angry. Fine, I'll give him a shower. So he took him off to the shower. My dad came back and I said, was he nice to you? He says, no, he roughed me up in the shower. And um, it appeared that he probably used a very dull razor on his face because he had like these, they look like scabs, but they weren't from where they shaved him. It was terrible. I said, well, I don't like that. And I had the administrator's number, and I called him at home on his cell phone, and I said, this is absolutely unacceptable. I said, I expect that his bed's made every day. He's up dressed every day and taken care of. And I said, this man roughed him up. Well, it turns out the CNA that that was on that side of the, the nursing home was because he had had problems on the other side with family and roughed people up. And uh, so they just switched him side because another family had a problem. Well, um, it turns out because of that CNA's past history, they fired him that day. They fired him the next day. Um, and I told them, I said, I don't want that CNA anywhere near my dad ever again. So now I'm a problem, right? Right, and at the, right. 
at the same time, I had taken his liquid iron because after, you know, he went through the whole iron thing, I was giving him that liquid iron every day. And I took that and I took his vitamin D that I give him. And I think another med. I took him. I said, please give this to him every day. Well, it turns out they were giving him that and, and pills, double. Oh, and let me back up. So after he got out of the shower and was roughed up in the shower, I noticed the bandage on his arm where that skin tear was. It was all wet and nobody was going to change it. You don't leave a wet bandage on a wound like that to dry. And, Marsha, no. I peeled off the – and underneath this big, huge bandage, it was like a – a square, a big square Band-Aid. It was probably like a four-by-four four size Band-Aid. I peeled it off, and it stunk to high heaven, high heaven. And underneath there, it was just nasty. And his wound, his wounds look horrible. So here I go again complaining. I'm like, um, his arm, he needs a new bandage. I actually took that bandage, and I put it in a plastic bag because it stunk so bad, and I took it with me and took pictures. I'm like, this is unacceptable. So I complained about that, so now I'm even more of a problem. And um, anyway, so they came and they put another bandage on it. I thought they took care of it, and I didn't want to touch the bandage. I left it on, you know, and I actually ran home and got my own wound care stuff because I was going to take care of it. But they're like, no, 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 we'll do it. I'm like, okay. And so let's see. So then uh, that was the weekend, and then the Wednesday comes. And this is the second week in, and he gets a new roommate who's coughing. And I remember sitting in the chair next to my dad, listening to this guy cough, and I thought to myself, oh, Lord, I hope that's not COVID. And then my second thought was just, you know, don't think that way. Um, he's probably just old, you know, don't, don't think that. So, uh, but, you know, the coughing was incredible to me. So time went on. He still wasn't doing great there. I really just wanted to take him home. And then he was going to be discharged. Oh, and then the week, and then the next weekend came, Saturday. Saturday night, early Sunday morning, I woke up at 2 a.m. worried about him, going, gosh, I hope he's okay. And I was going to call the place, and I thought, they're going to think I'm a loon up at 2 in the morning you know, calling them. So I did not, but I went in early Sunday morning and um, before I went to church, it was about 8, 8.30 I got there and I didn't stay very long. I just, because I woke up at 2 in the morning worried about him, I wanted to check on him to see his face. Sure. Where I went. So I, I, I went in. He looked okay. So I you know, said hello, kissed him, stayed a few minutes, went off to church, and I, I have a, I have another phone, and it uh, turns out after they saw my face that early morning, they were calling me, telling me that he fell at 2 in the morning. I was so connected to him, I know. He was probably laying on that floor crying for help because he probably had to wake up to go to the bathroom. That's about the time he'd wake up and go to the bathroom, um, and they probably didn't come help him. And so but they he didn't got tell up and, you. When you were physically no. there, they did no. not tell you. They wait until you leave to call and tell you. Yeah, I think what happened is they probably saw me walking out the door going, oh, she knows that he fell. You know, my dad didn't tell me, though. But they probably thought, oh, 
we better call and let her know. But they should have called me at 2 in the morning. I told them, if anything happens, I don't care what time of day or night is. I have this other phone that I don't use much, and it's always on. It's right next to my head. You call me. They did not. So, uh, yeah, that was another thing. So they allowed him to fall, and I had a big sign for him um, because he always, you know, he was always worried about wetting the bed. And so I had a big sign for him, um, call, don't fall, call for help. And so he, you know, I know he called. He was always calling them if he had to get up. I said, if you get out of this bed, you call. And he always followed directions. As long as I left a note big enough for him to see to remind him, he would always know to do what that note says. And he did. So, yeah, they. So I can't imagine they were so busy at 2 in the morning that uh, they were probably sleeping, is my guess. Uh, I can't imagine because I'm sure he was yelling at them. You know, he was very, um, you know, to him to have any kind of accident, you know, in the incontinent that was upsetting to him. So he was very aware of that. So uh, I didn't even know that he fell until I came home from church and visiting him. So I just, you know, obviously I went every day. After church, I went in and hung out and then, the next day I was saying, oh, aren't you excited to come home tomorrow? I can come get you. And I and they, they wanted me to wait till like, Tuesday morning because I said, no, if you're going to, well, we'll discharge him Monday, but you can come pick him up Tuesday morning because they wanted another day. I said, no, if his discharge date's Monday, I'm coming to get him Monday morning. And um, so Monday morning I went. And just as I was driving, I drove up to the electric gate, and just as the gate's going open, I'm waiting for it to open, my phone rings. It's them. They're calling. Um, I said, I'm here. Um, oh, well, we just want to call and let you know we had a little COVID outbreak. Oh, really? Okay. And so I went in. They had moved him to a different room uh, with his original roommate. And he has COVID now, and I'm talking to his roommate, and, he, and I recorded all this, funny enough. His roommate was telling me how his wife has COVID at home. And this was the man that came in off the street, and the nurse explained to me, oh, yeah, we, we test, you know, five, we wait five days to test. But this man was coughing. How could they allow him in that nursing home? They don't care. They just want the money. They, he had to have been positive for COVID when he was admitted. There's no way he was not. He was coughing. So if he had symptoms, and so say even if they tested him, they still should have put him in a different room until they knew for sure if it's exactly. a five-day incubator. And he should not, not have been in with the roommate. He should not no. have been moved in with the roommate. He should have been in his own room until they found out for sure. Yeah, absolutely, especially with right. the symptoms. And, you know, these people. Well, and, and the age of your dad. That too, and knowing he has COPD, you know, and right. I had I had told them on Saturday when the nurse came to give him his meds, I'm like, he needs a breathing treatment, which was really unusual because he normally didn't, and I thought something's going on again because he needs breathing treatment, and you know, I she didn't even pick up on it when she gave him his meds, like, it's not like I couldn't hear him wheezing, and she's a nurse, she should know better, she should be that observant, but nope, nope. Um, they just, you know, on their way, and it, come to find out, I found this out at discharge, that they were giving him, not only were they giving him the liquid iron, they were doubling up, they were giving him the pills, the iron pills, and then on top of that, they were giving him medication 
a bunch of medication for constipation. So the iron pills, and then there's more pills for the constipation and the side effects. Oh, my goodness. Seriously. Unbelievable. So medication mm-hmm. error, neglect, letting him fall, you know. And now, um, so his wound was pretty bad. So now he has COVID, and it's time to discharge, and they want me to leave him there. Absolutely not. Well, don't you want him to stay another day so he can see the doctor tomorrow? I said, why can't the doctor see him today? Well, the doctor doesn't work on Monday. Well, but this is like an emergency, don't you think? No, he'll come in to see him tomorrow. I said, absolutely not. So I signed him out technically against medical advice because they wanted him to stay. But yet there was no nurse assigned to his room. They weren't helping him. When I picked him up, he wasn't wheezing really or anything. I just knew he had COVID, but he didn't look so good. In fact, I should back up a little bit because over the weekend when I walked in and saw him, you see a picture from the day before and he looks bright and happy and good. And the next day I walked in and his face looked sunk in, sunk in, his eyes looked dark, the circles under his eyes looked dark. I said, what's going on with you? You don't look very good today. And that's when that wheezing had started. So I knew something wasn't right. I just, at the time, I don't, I thought about it being COVID the day that I heard him cough, but I kind of put that out of my head. So anyways, they, I took him home and I feel so lucky that at least I was able to take him to the lake one last time because on the way home, I said, come on, I'm going to take you to the lake for a few minutes before we go home and we can see the ducks. That was one of the things we did that he loved. And so he says, oh, you're so good. And I brought him home and I made him tea and I had um, a nice stew in the crock pot for him. And I, I, something I never did before, I came home and gave him very modest. Um, I wiped him down, you know, just like his arms and legs and stuff. And, you know, I have to say that was a real privilege because I never had to, I didn't shower him. I had someone else do that for modesty and privacy. But um, it was a real honor. But, you know, they didn't, they didn't shower him or bathe him or do anything good for him. And I didn't shave him, and I should have. I feel bad that I didn't know he didn't. But anyways, so now he has COVID, and he didn't last all from pretty much maybe an hour after I brought him home. He started wheezing. So I literally was up all night giving him breathing treatments like every hour. I'm like, this can't go on. I have to take him. And I felt so bad because he was so happy to be home, you know, and he didn't yeah. want to go back. and didn't want to take him back. So here right, I go again. Right. All the paramedics, I mean, when his blood oxygen was dropping super low, I'm like, we can't do this. We can't do this, Dad. You have to go for me. The paramedics come once again, and it's a big harassment. I've never been so harassed in my life. I mean, they waited a long time to transport him. They were monkeying around. Well, I mean, he's got COVID. You really? I said, yeah. He, I said, I finally looked at one of the parents. I said, if this was your family, wouldn't you call? I mean, they looked at me like, well, why did you call? I'm like, look at his blood saturation. It was going down to like the 80s. I'm like, he needs help. Um, I'm like, wouldn't you? And then, of course, it was a big problem. They didn't have an ambulance to come get him. And which Kaiser, I said, you're going to take him to the better Kaiser. Not that there is a good Kaiser, but the other one, um, um, but they wouldn't. They said, no, we have to take him to this Kaiser. And it was a big fight. I'm like, well, 
And, you know, by this time I'm worn out. I've been up all night and exposed to COVID. I, at the time I wasn't, I hadn't tested, but I'm, I know I had COVID myself. Just the symptoms weren't that bad yet. Um, and so they, they said, does he have a pulse? I said, yes. And he looked it over and he's like, this needs to be changed. This is 10 years old already. And I'm like, well, who are you to tell me to change what? These were my dad's wishes, not mine. I said, I'm following his wishes, not mine. And since when do we just, you know, it doesn't matter if you write down your wishes because ultimately people will tell you, well, things have changed since then. Well, yes, that's why, the, that's why we do it beforehand. Because these are our wishes, but they don't allow that anymore. They will do anything and everything to bully you over to get you to do what they want you to do. Um, to give up. So, to just give yeah, up. Just, Look at yeah. his age. He's 90. Do you really want, you know, why don't you go ahead and sign a DNR? Do you, you know, do you really want yeah. us to give him oxygen? Really? Do you really want us to give him a feeding tube? Well, that pulse says that's what he wants, and I'm following what he wants, because he has the right to say what he wants. That's, and that's and unfortunately, I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, I know you're going to continue to tell your story, but um, with the way that things are now, um, hindsight, you know, knowing that they're really not going to do anything for him, then... You know, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, it's better to keep them at home. You're right. You know, I mean, I'm not going to the hospital if it's something like that, you know, COVID or something, because I don't trust them. They'll, you know, decide I don't – plus if they find out I do a radio show talking bad about them, they're definitely (laughs) going to want to do me in. You're 100% right. Uh, no, you're 100% right, and they will pull you over to get any answer. I just right. noticed it's already been an hour, so let me speed this up a little bit. So uh, they take him to the hospital, and, you know, I, I had told you this. I lied the whole time about his COVID vaccine because yeah. um, he was um, – because I knew. I knew we would be treated poorly if, you know, if we weren't all on board with their little, you know, mRNA vaccine. No thanks. Um, and not that I'm against vaccines because I think they're wonderful. Not the mRNA one. They change your DNA. Anyways, so I finally got them to transport him. And um, when we got there, um, I hear over, this is an older Kaiser, and over the loudspeaker, septic alert, bed, bay 14. And I looked at my dad's room. Oh, my gosh, that's him. So I'm like on the app, I'm like, oh, this is not good. He's septic. And they, I guess they had seen that I put in a complaint about his arm because they showed me, they took an x-ray of his arm to make sure that that infection wasn't in the bone, but they were telling me it wasn't infected. Well, if his arm wasn't infected, and it all makes sense now, and the septic alert, if his arm wasn't infected, then why did they take an x-ray? Oh, we just did it to make sure, because I'm sure they saw that, because I had to call Kaiser to complain about that. Kaiser has a Nurse, if your uh, loved one's in one of our uh, nursing, you know, uh, contracted nursing homes, you call this number. And so I, I did and complained, and they were trying to cover their ass, I'm telling you right now. Um, so they, they did that, and um, I uh, and they were saying, okay, well, we're going to give him some redemptivere. I said, no, absolutely not. Why not? Why don't you want that? And I was harassed. There was this younger doctor, and I, I told you this, I'm 5'3". So she must have been about 5'2". She stood on her tippy toes, and she got less than a half an inch away from my face, 
right in my face, eye to eye, why don't you want to give him that? And I didn't really give her an answer. I said, you know, um, it's just a heavy medication and it causes kidney failure. And, you know, he already has problems with his kidneys. Well, this is the right way. I got so harassed. And um, there was no way they were going to give Invermectin. No way on God's green earth. Um, Rimdesivir. Or, rimd, or, yeah, Rimdesivir. Um, okay. Yeah, they wanted them severe. But um, I said no, and that was a big red flag. And I kept asking, why is he septic? Oh, he's probably just dehydrated. You see, we're doing labs, and it's going down a little bit now that he's getting some fluids. How could he be dehydrated? That man, I had to slow him down on his drinking of water because he drank so much. It was getting to be actually dangerous because it can overpower your heart. I mean, he would drink so much a day. And I know my dad better than that, nursing home or not. And if he was dehydrated, then that would be the nursing home's fault. So um, round and round, they didn't hardly want to admit him. And then his cardiac enzymes were bad and all kinds of stuff. And I'm telling you, I had to fight. Now, by this time, I had been awake over 24 hours because I had been up with him all night giving breathing treatments, and I'm sick myself. And I stayed till the evening when they finally agreed to admit him. And um, uh, the doctor said, well, this is going to be a long haul. Well, five days later, when they knew I was actually tested positive for COVID, they wanted to send him home, and they knew I couldn't come get him. I wanted to see him, and I tried to refuse. And I called the Medicare helpline, and Marcia, they badgered me so bad. I knew he wasn't well enough to come home after five days. No way. Um, And they badgered me, and they said, you're going to get charged for this, and you're going to have a big bill. And I said, I called the Medicare dispute line. Well, they're going to agree with us. They always do. And they badgered me so much, I finally said, okay. They brought him home in an ambulance. The moment he stepped off that gurney, he was a mess. I could see right away. But his oxygen is good. They told me when they discharge him, he can walk 150 feet. He very rarely needs a breathing treatment, blah, blah, blah. Well, that wasn't the case. He lasted less than 12 hours here. Again, I'm up all night, sick myself, giving him breathing treatments around the clock, and his blood oxygen is dipping again. Once again, same with the paramedics. It's always a fight because, um, you know, his pulse is not right for them. They don't like that he doesn't want CPR, but he wants an airway. Uh, you know, it's old and and the fight goes on. And this time I made them take him to the different Kaiser, the better of the two. And they, uh, you know, I I couldn't go. I'm COVID, you know, did I go? Oh, yes, I did go. I had Bible study in the parking lot. I did go. Um, Or did I not? I didn't go. I didn't go with him at that time. Yeah, you said you called every day. I did call every day, and yeah. every day they would call and harass me. It was uh, the discharge planner was calling me. He had only been there a day or two. Is the plan still to put him in I, in a nursing home? Yeah. Well, if I, it depends. But they literally called my phone every day. I had to turn my phone off. They were just harassing me with nonsense, with nonsense. And I was telling them, look, he has a pulse. I'm in no position to make these decisions right now. The brain fog, I don't know if anybody's had COVID, but... The brain fog is absolutely horrible, and at the same time, I didn't know then. I did now. 
my thyroid, um, because I don't have a thyroid, my medication was off and it was beyond low. So that causes brain fog. And then you're super sick with COVID. They called and harassed me every day they did. I finally turned my phone off and I started recording phone calls because they were that harassing. You need to change this. You need to not do this. Finally, after him being weeks in the hospital, I was kind of okay enough to go see him. And that was a big mistake but I really wanted to see him. They didn't bathe him while he was there. They didn't shave him. They did nothing for him. And that day that I was coming to see him, he choked. They were giving him these potassium pills, huge horse pills, and he choked and he aspirated. Oh, now he's got aspiration pneumonia. There's nothing more we can do. So the the, the plan was to get me down there to do the euthanasia. That was the plan. I know now... um, I should have never gone down there. I should have just kept ignoring them and kept saying, you follow his pulse. He would have still been here today. You follow what he legally wanted. Um, because I, there was a point where I broke down and I was calling my pastor saying, I, this is nuts. I can't even think straight. And they want all these decisions. I said, I can't. You're just going to have to follow. That's what, that's what pulse are for anyway. You know, if, if you can't make your decisions or someone can't, that's what it's there for. The harassment was absolutely horrifying, and I'm glad I, I got it recorded. Um, so the day I went down there, um, like I said, he had choked. And, Marsha, I walked in, and I know now, it didn't occur to me then, I walked in, he was in a brand-new room, double room, perfectly made bed. You know, when someone's been in the hospital that long, they usually have, like, leftover food from trays and supplies that the nurses leave. No, he was in a brand new room with a nurse from a telemetry three floor monitoring him on the CPAP, brand new room. And um, I hear the charge nurse say, oh, you can cancel the sitter now. We don't need them. And uh, the daughter's here now. And um, he was suffering so bad he couldn't breathe. They had, he was shivering. He had the chills. They had a warm blanket over his. He looked so pathetic. And um, they're like, you need to give him some medication, you know, to help him breathe like this morphine. And I, like, agreed to it because um, he was, like, suffering. It was frightening to see him. I'm like, okay, give it to him, give it to him. They took that as that I wanted to do the euthanasia and the comfort care. No, I just wanted him to be comfortable. Like I said, I was never against the medication if he needed it, just not unnecessarily. And so they took that, and then they that is I really wanted to do this euthanasia and I thought about it and I just wanted him to be comfortable to allow him to breathe and relax Um, you know his oxygen was like down to 80 and then they moved me to a private room shoved me in there put this candle on the door and I said I can't do this no 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 and what they wanted to do was they wanted to drug him up with all the drugs and they wanted to take away his CPAP and I said "He, he says well that's what they do and I'm like, there's no way. I'm not going to watch him gasp for Don't worry. We have drugs to help him with that. We'll give him the medic. I said, no, no, no. And they were still giving him antibiotics at this point and everything. I just, I thought about it. I'm like, they put me in a situation basically telling me we're not going to help you anymore. There's nothing more we can do for him. And that's a lie. They refused to give him breathing treatment. Um, they finished his antibiotics. But there was more they could have done to help him, and they should have. Well, we went round and round. I got gaslighted so much. They even had the chaplain come talk to me saying, well, you know, it's like 
having objects on a table, they're, they're all slowly disappearing, coming off the table. And I said, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. This is not fair. But they dug their heels in. They weren't going to do anything more for him. It was either you kill him and overdose him, and I couldn't do it. I called my pastor. I'm like, I, I was telling them, I'm like, I feel like Dr. Kaborkian. I'm like, I can't right. do that to my I No, I couldn't, and I was looking for scriptures and anything I could just, like, is this the right thing to do? And no, it's not. It's gross. And um, I wanted them to give him the meds because he was able to rest. And when he was getting, like, the morphine and stuff, his his pulse ox was perfect. He was resting. But they have the CPAP. They're like, we can't keep the CPAP on. It's been on um, too long, and it wasn't on that long. It was on 24 hours. And these CPAPs are uncomfortable. It's like in a convertible, blah, blah, blah. It was absolutely horrifying. I said, don't push me. I'm going to make you intubate him then because I'm not taking away his breathing. I'm not. And I knew if I intubated him, at least they would intubate him. He would have the breathing that he wanted, and they would also medicate him. I would get what I wanted, but they said, I said, why can't you just leave him, um, you know, so he can sleep with these meds on the drip and the CPAP? Nope, that's comfort care. And if you have the meds to help relax him, then we have to take away the breathing part. No, not doing it. Not doing it. Wow. Yeah, they gave up on him. They said, oh, pneumonia is like an old man's friend. You know, you know the old saying. And, I mean, there came a point where I was going to, um, like, push the button on the wall because nobody was helping him. This man was wide awake the whole time. And he started to cry. I said, I'm sorry, Dad, they don't want to help you. And he started to cry, and he didn't want to leave this planet. He didn't. He wanted. He talked uh, every day about to see the birds that that we have and the, wanting to go to the lake and take pictures with me. He was teaching me that. You know, he had so much to look forward to. And they just decided, just as those Kaiser papers stated, that they intentionally do this. They intentionally do this. And then, oh, sorry, we're not going to. They made the decision. In fact, the night before, the, I had a doctor call and scream at me going, he's not even awake. I'm like, he's not awake because you gave him the meds. He's not even there. It doesn't even matter. You should have heard. And the nurse thinks it's cruel that you're doing this to your dad, giving him these treatments and everything. The nurse thinks that? Well, it's not for her to think. I'm his daughter. That's right. And, and you know, right. and I he would have been clear. He was clear on what he wanted, and he did not want to be euthanized. Absolutely, absolutely. And he uh, didn't want his oxygen taken away. Right, absolutely. Um, and those were his wishes, and um, and you're not allowed to follow these. And, I mean, there's a lot more to my story, but that's the base of it. And what I want to say well, but to your people pastor, that are... Your pastor comes in and prays yeah. in the room, and what happens? Yeah. Oh, oh yes. And so just as we say amen, my dad sits up and his eyes got huge. You know, he had the CPAP on, so he couldn't talk, and his eyes got huge like, oh, what's going on here? I think he knew at that point, like, this is not good. Um, you mm-hmm. know, she's got You're people. praying over me. Yeah. 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 And um, they didn't believe me. And the nurses, I'm like, well, he woke up when he heard us say amen. And they're like, and, the, and my pastor had to step in and say, yes. He did wake up. Otherwise, no, it's just, he's just an old man that just, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. 
And plus, he's got dementia. Yes, he had dementia, but he still had purpose to life. He still, like, helped me cut food up every day. We went to the lake, and he showed me how to take pictures because he was a photographer. And, you know, he still had things he looked forward to. It wasn't like he had some, you know, terminal cancer where he was in pain. Um, and every day he talked about that. And he even said to me, I'm going to beat this. And because he knew he had COVID, I'm going to beat this, you'll see. And he wanted to fight and try, but I wasn't allowed to help him. They just dug in their heels. They needed their bed, and he was taking up way too many resources for them, and that was it. Too bad, lady. Too bad. And and I don't understand why they don't just let someone live until they pass. I mean, right. you, you know, your dad is eventually going to pass. Why can't it be a month from now? Why can't it be a week from now? You know, why can't it be right. six months? Why do they feel the need to hasten that? And, and anyway, yeah. you look at that, that's murder. If your it dad said, you know, I, I don't want to live like this, I know I'm not going to get any better, and, you know, just just end it, then that's one thing. That is not what your dad said. And that is not what you told them. And that makes it murder. It is murder. And let me tell you, I didn't tell you this, but so, and I kept asking, were you going to test him for COVID again? Uh, No, it's probably still lingering in his nose. You know, it'll probably, well, let me tell you, everybody was around this man. I walked with him to the ICU and guess what? I sat in the ICU waiting room while they were intubating him and doing all that fine I waited like two hours, and I finally said, I want to come in and see him. Oh, yep, they let me in, but they wouldn't let me in his room. I had to look at him through a glass. They said, no, the doctor has put him on um, COVID isolation now, just in case, and nobody's allowed to come in to see him. So that's what they did. They didn't even let me be with him when he passed, and they didn't even let me go in and kiss him or anything. It was like, you're a bad daughter because you intubated him, and now we're going to pay you back and keep you away from your dad. And that's exactly what they did. Oh, they, would, they wouldn't let me in. No, 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 COVID now, see. And, you know, it's crazy because the bad Kaiser that he went to, the doctor that got up on my face, at that Kaiser, you have to go through metal detectors, and they check you for guns, and I know why now. Because those doctors, they do things like that that are nasty and they can get away with it because they have security. I'm not a violent person or a person that would cause a scene or anything. But they have all the power in the world to keep you away from your loved ones too. And that's very common when, when they have COVID. They use the excuse of, nope, oh, no, no, nobody can be around. You you can't be with your dad. Absolutely not. But that was my And you would, you would think that, you know, I mean, this is 2023. You would think mm-hmm. that the draconian efforts that they were doing, I mean, we already know wearing a mask doesn't do squat. We already know the jab doesn't do squat. And if you get it or you don't get it, you still, everybody can get COVID. And wearing a mask doesn't help. If you go in the no. room because you want to see your dad and you are willing to take the risk of spending the last moments with your dad or the last days, weeks, whatever it is, and you want to take that risk, that is your prerogative. They are not, you know, they've walked in and out of that room. They probably have it too. I mean, how did he get it? By a guy that came in coughing, and they put him in your dad's room. So ultimately, at the nursing home, they gave your dad COVID. Yes, and I'm and doing that. And you that. don't have the right to go in and say goodbye to your dad if that's your choice. And you already had no. COVID. So, I mean, no. it's well, not that- like. 
you you were going to get COVID, you already had it. And my antibodies were super high, exactly. And the thing was, everybody, he walked, I was in a room with him, like just hours before, uh, in a room with him, nobody had a mask, no nothing. And then they, they locked me out of the ICU because I intubated him. That's why they were mad at me. They were mad at me, so that was my punishment, is you're not going to be able to be with your dad now because now it's, it's, it's uh, isolation. But I am suing them. I am not the kind of person when um, my thyroid was removed, my vocal cord was cut, and I lost my voice for three years. And everybody said to me, aren't you going to sue the doctor? I said, no, I, I'm not. That's not my style at all, just so you know. However, the way that he was treated, neglected, hurt, um, unintentionally not providing care to him, absolutely, absolutely. And I don't well, do it for the money. No, of course not, and, and none of us would. Did I give you Carol Herman's information from Foundation Aiding the Elderly? No. No, you need to contact her. I'm sorry, I thought it just dawned on me. Yeah, Foundation, I can send that to you. I'll, I'll message you that. Yeah, you need to contact her because she's in your state. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and she—I mean, she's feisty. She, she's good. a feisty lady. So uh, I'll I, send you that information. Yeah. Thank you, but I so, hope that people really know what's going on with COVID and this redemptivere and the and the antics and anybody that's older, even for yourself if you're younger, if you have elderly family members, please make a plan and please make sure that you brush up on what is going on, what medications that they're given. Um, you look at everything and don't take their word for it because they lie. They lie and they manipulate and everybody's just a dollar now. And the fact is that hospitals are way overcrowded from, uh, you know, uh, you know, honestly from a lot of the illegal people that come because once they get here, they're super sick and they take up a lot of room yet. Uh, now it's all about money and dishonesty, and that's one of the reasons I walked away from the medical field instead of going to nursing school. I had found IT at the same time, but still, uh, it's it's a lot worse today, and it's very frightening, and I hope that everybody takes note. It's hospice. It, it's the medical field in general. If you're dealing with the medical field at all, beware, no matter what, and you need to advocate people and make sure you have a plan and whatever you do if you can help it please don't put your your elderly in a, in a nursing home that was my goal to avoid it and I'm glad he never had to live there except for that short time very sad to me well it is and you didn't want to do that and more than likely he didn't even need to go there because his arm was not out of place right I just didn't know you know he could use it if- right and so you could have kept him at home. But a lot of times, you know, in, in our generation now, you know, generations before, they always kept their loved ones in their home, like you did. You know, you had your dad there, you took care of your dad. Um, my dad moved in with us after my mom was murdered by hospice in Georgia, and he stayed with us and we took care of him until he would have been 94. But we took care of him, and a lot, you know. And I'm not faulting anybody if they can't do it. Everybody's situation is different. But if they're in a nursing home, you need to go there and see them, and you need to do what you did, 
and, you know, look at them and, you know, look to see do they have any bed sores, you know, have they fallen, did they not call you and let you know, what what kind of medication are they taking, are they giving him, you know, the iron when they were double ironing him and, you know, and then he's getting constipated. So those are things that we all need to be aware of and question everything. You have the right to question anything. So they don't have the right to refuse that of you. You're his care provider. Absolutely, and do not do a DNR unless your family member, like my father, did not want CPR. Um, Or at least if you don't want the CPR, uh, keep the airway, and they will fight and argue with you. But if you keep, if you say no to the compressions and the CPR, but you keep the airway, they still have to fully treat them. And that was the part that they really hated with my dad because they knew they were in a bind. If I, and they tried, you know, they will try and talk you out of the airway, but you can tell them, no, I'm not comfortable with that, and that's well within your rights. But you have to fight. It's, 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 it's a war today. It truly is. It's a spiritual mm-hmm. war. Everything and is, yes. It, and life of the elderly is not valued by them anymore. They don't care, um, and it, it, it's, it's very sad state of affairs. And I want to say that I'm very thankful to you, uh, Marty, I know I'm going to make you sad. I'm glad she started this and everybody else yeah. that is this fight, but please do and please um, take note that this, you know, uh, it, it's happening right before our eyes and it was bad for right. years ago. And, and it's getting right. worse. It is getting worse because yeah. uh, the, the is hospitals are so overcrowded now. 30 years ago, let me tell you, 30 years ago, when I worked in the ER, we would close our ER. We couldn't close to trauma because of the time we were the only trauma center. But we would close. We would stop uh, doing routine surgeries. They would comb through the hospitals at night to see who they could discharge. And now it's even worse with the overcrowding. And, um, you know, here where I'm at, they, they even have tents set up outside now and everything. Or what they'll do even just to save space. They're having people do lab work and x-rays and then putting them back in the waiting room. There is no room. So anybody right. that's elder. Yeah, they're over. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's over. So um, typically I want to let everybody know, typically there are programs on Thursday with agriculture and on Friday COS does programs with guardianship. So I invite any of our listeners to listen to those programs also they start at eight eastern um and then you know whatever your time zone is you know back it up and i'm very grateful you know for you rachel coming on and talking to us i know this was hard for you but it's important for the information that you gave people that we have to fight for our loved ones because the medical profession is not going to be doing it for us. And hospice is dangerous. I, you know, take the word hospice and stick a circle around it and put a line through it. They're dangerous. And, you know, my friend, you know, I just lost him Monday. Unfortunately, he didn't go with the medication, um, at the bitter end, which I was really glad. Um, there is a book out, I mentioned it earlier, by Michelle Young Doers, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. Um, I mentioned a few minutes ago, Carol Herman, Foundation Aiding the Elderly. There is a group, halovoice.org, which has a lot of information on it, that you can get a lot of information on Halo Voice 
org as well. So there are resources out there. Um, look for them. We have a Facebook group called Murdered by Hospice, and we have a lot of files in that group which tell you how to acquire medical records, and that's something that's really important. Rachel, I don't think we talked about that. Did you get the medical records so that you know all the procedures and the, the medication that they gave him? Well, yes and no. I had access to the app, and towards the end there, I did request the medical records. They sent me a link, and it's real easy now with electronic, and I only had so long to click on the link, and I was just, you know, so busy and overall. However, I am getting all of his medical records but now. You can through. Still, yeah, but you can still go back and get that information from them. I, yeah, and so, I'm going to. I access the app anymore, yeah. unfortunately. I am getting that. So, yeah. So anyway, um, thank you so much for um, talking to everybody tonight, and thank you for our listeners for calling in. And those of you who are listening on the Internet, and we will be back next week with a story from Stephen Garrett about his mother, and it will be the the day after the anniversary of her murder. So catch us next week on that. So I'd like to wish everybody a good night and hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate you calling and telling your dad's story. All right. Thank you, everybody. Good night. All right. Thank you. Good night, everybody.